This morning's scripture reading is from Acts 21:17 through 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself among or along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Please join me as we pray God's blessing over the teaching of his word. Most Holy Father, we thank you for this church and we thank you for your word. We humbly ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts would be softened for the message your servant, Pastor Tommy, has prepared. May we be blessed and may you be glorified. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I wanted to circle back uh, to the statement by Paul uh, that we discussed a couple weeks ago, and that is found in Acts chapter 20. And in this, he, he was talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus uh, about their responsibility as it related to the church which they've been entrusted with as shepherds. I wanted to circle back because I, I think it is deeply informative of the story we just heard. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Paul is here talking to the, to the elders of Ephesus, and it's, it's the last time he's going to talk to them. It's the last time he's going to see them. It says that he, he, had, he had, he'd shared with them that this is the last time they'd see his face. He was getting on a boat, and he was, he was going to sail away. And, and as he's trying to lay the groundwork for, for a healthy church, as he's trying to lay the groundwork for their, their healthy leadership, he says, I want you to understand the nature of this church. 
This is the church of God. This is the church of God. Doesn't belong to anyone else. Doesn't belong to any of you. This is the church of God, and it was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. He said, man, this is the value. This is what it's worth. This is the importance of it. He bought this church with his blood. This is the depth of what it means. What he was doing is he was, he was emphasizing what was necessary to obtain it. He was, he was emphasizing the cost that was paid to obtain the church. The Holy Spirit in this, in this writing, in his saying, is trying to get us to, to treat the church with the respect that it's due. Because this isn't a message just to the, to the elders of Ephesus, is it? We open up the, the, the book of Acts, and it's, a, and it's in the word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for our teaching, for our correction, for our instruction. And so the Holy Spirit is trying to get us to have this idea that, that this is what it's worth. How many of you guys know that, that when, when we don't have a, a, a proper understanding of the value of something, a lot of times we don't treat it with the respect it should be treated with, Right? Any of us who have children understand what I just said, right? You, you, you found a stereo and you saved and you saved and you saved. It was just a little bit beyond, you know, what, what it was worth. And, and it was back, you know, like when, when, you had, when you had CDs, right? And you bought it, you spent all this money, and then you're, you, you walk in on your kid and he's trying to put a pancake in the CD holder, right? What are you doing? Or you get a brand new car, right? You have this brand new car and, and, and you spent all this money and it's beautiful and it's clean and it's pristine and it's awesome and your kids get into it one time and you see their, their muddy footprints all over the back of the seat and they got sticky stuff all over, right? Anybody, anybody else, right? This is why we say things like, this is why, when you don't, when you don't understand things, Right? When you, don't, when you don't understand the value of something, you don't appreciate it the way you should. You don't, you don't take hold of it the way you should. You don't treat it the way you should. I really feel like, like this, this is a lesson we in the modern church need to learn. We, we've, been going, we've been going through the book of Acts, and, and we've said all along that it really, is, it really is, is a study in the first century church. It's really a study in... The book of Acts is really this, this study in the, the actions and, and the attributes and the attitudes of this first century church that was so unstoppable. This, this first century church that was, that was able to change the face of the earth. We, we've seen lesson after lesson after lesson after lesson, a lesson in how to pray, a lesson in how to care for one another, a lesson in how to stand firm, a lesson in how to engage the Holy Spirit and bring it in in power into the, into the community of faith. We've had lesson after lesson as we've looked through this and, and it reflected on, on the attributes and the attitudes and the actions that we can emulate, that we can have in our lives. And as we step into this, uh, this passage, we step into this account of, of, of Paul's life, whether it's in, in chapter 20 in his, in his, in his interaction with, with, the, with the elders of Ephesus or here in chapter 21, we see the, the, the attitude that Paul calls the church to in chapter 20 and then the action that he displays in chapter 21 that should challenge us today. 
Paul in chapter 20 shows us how much he understands the value of the church. He, he, he shows us how much he, he, how much he grasps what the church is worth. And then as we step into chapter 21, we see that, that sense of the value of the church manifested in the actions he took. I feel like, I feel like Jesus looks at the way many of us in our, in our culture and in our churches approach the community of faith. And I feel like he must be throwing his hands in the air and saying, this is why you can't have nice things. The declaration of Paul in chapter 20 sets, sets the baseline for the attitude we should have towards the church. And then the actions of Paul in the passage we just read establishes the personal approach that, that, that really is profound, that really is, should be challenging. It should be challenging us in our actions, the actions we take as it comes to the community of faith. Let's pick up the story again in, in verse 17. Uh, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one, of, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Now, I want us to stop there. And I want you guys to grasp the, the, the scene that, we're, that we stepped into here. Paul comes to the church in Jerusalem. Uh, the church in Jerusalem that is, that is populated primarily by Jewish people. Jewish people who have come to know Jesus Christ, who have come to faith. Jerusalem being the place where, where that church was born, right? In Acts chapter 2. And he reports to them all that has been happening among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, this is a big deal, right? Culturally, this is a big deal. Uh, the, the, the Jews traditionally have, have, have grown up with an understanding of, of a deep separation between Jew and Gentile. Gentiles are unclean. Gentiles are unpure. Gentiles are those that we can't go into their house. We can't sit down and eat with them. And so all of a sudden, these, these Jerusalem Jews who come to know faith in Jesus Christ begin to look around and they see God moving among the Gentiles and he's knitting them together as a church. So this creates this, this real interesting uh, dilemma for them. And they're looking at it going, wow, we've been always taught that they're, that they're unclean, but the Spirit of God is moving on them, and the Spirit of God is anointing them, and the Spirit of God is establishing them. And so they're like, we've got to embrace this. This was a conversation they had earlier in the book of Acts when they had the, 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 the Council of Jerusalem. And they kind of talked through this whole thing. They said, man, we can't, we can't deny what God's doing. They're brothers and sisters in Christ just like us. So basically what happens is Paul comes back, and he says, man, and God, man has God been moving? I mean, we're going and we're preaching and, and people are being healed and demons are being cast out and people are coming to Christ and we're establishing churches and we're establishing elders and, and all over the place. God is moving amongst the Gentiles. God is, God is doing incredible things by establishing the church among Greeks and, and Romans and Samaritans all over the place. God is doing these wonderful things. And, and I think this is, is particularly interesting when you remember back to the conversion of, of, of Paul all the way in Acts chapter 9. Remember what God said of Paul to Ananias? He said, 
Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So Paul is coming back to Jerusalem, having this conversation with the elders of Jerusalem, whose congregation is primarily Jewish. And he's saying, God, I am fulfilling God's calling for me. And as he talks about this, everyone is rejoicing in all that God is doing among the Gentiles. But I want you to see something interesting in the text. Because the conversation changes rapidly, doesn't it? What ends up happening is, is he comes in and he goes, he goes, look at what God's doing amongst us. Look at, look at the amazing things that God's doing amongst the Gentiles. And, and, and so Paul is talking about what God has been doing through him. But they quickly turn the focus to, see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believe? You see the interaction here. Paul goes, Paul goes this, is what, this is what God has been doing. This is the amazing thing God is doing. And they're like, oh, that's great. But have you noticed the thousands of Jews who come to know Jesus? They go right away to among the Jews who believe. They're like, wow, that's great, Paul. It's so wonderful to hear what God's doing among the Gentiles. Now let's talk about all these Jews that have gotten saved. Right? It happens really quickly, doesn't it? He tells them the story. It says, oh, they rejoice with him. And then right away they go, now let's talk about the Jews. Now the reason for this is what? These are the pastors of the church in Jerusalem. These are the pastors of the church in Jerusalem. And amongst them are a bunch of Jews. And they've been pastoring these Jewish folks. And they turn right away to the question with Paul as it relates to the Jews. And the reason they do this is because they've come to this conversation with Paul with an agenda. There's a concern that they have that they want to bring up with Paul. They're looking at it and they're saying, like, look, at, look at what God's done here in Jerusalem, Paul. I mean, it's great what's happening with the Gentiles. That's awesome. We, we rejoice in that. That's incredible. But do you see all the thousands amongst the Jews that we're trying to pastor here in Jerusalem? Do you see what's going on with us, Paul? Do you see, see the responsibility we have here? Do you see the church we're building here? Do you see the circumstances we find ourselves in? This is their, this is their paradigm. This is their, their, their concern. Because they've got this church that's kind of humming, and all of a sudden Paul has been doing this stuff out there that they're concerned is going to create an issue. You see, Brother Paul, you see how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They're all, they're all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? Right? They're laying out this dilemma. They're like, we got all these guys, they're serving Jesus, we got this church that's growing, and now they get this word that you're going around telling them to stop doing what they're doing. You're going to upset people. people you're, going to, you're going to change the dynamic. There's going to be issues in our, in our congregation. They will certainly hear that you have come, it says. Do therefore what we tell you. 
We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So do you see the dilemma that's taking place here? The elders of Jerusalem have a good church going. They have people who love Jesus, who serve Jesus, and out of their tradition and out of, and out of their reverence, they've been continuing in the traditions of the law. And, and the, the leaders are saying, listen, we've got something good going here, but they're all upset and they're all concerned and they're all worried because they feel like they're getting word that you're saying, don't do any of that stuff. Stop doing that. And so what we need you to do is, is we need you to step in and we need you to kind of show them that you're not do, saying that, that you're not telling them not to do these things. Because we don't, want to, we, don't want to, we don't want to upset the apple cart here. We don't want to create division here. We don't want to create arguments here. We need you to back us up on this. He's asking them to then demonstrate how it's okay by participating in this vow. This vow is something that, that, was, that is deeply set in the Jewish culture and tradition as it relates to their worship of, Jesus, of God. It shows their devotion to God. They're too for a season to abstain from wine and strong drink. Uh, they ate no grapes. Uh, they, were to come, they, were never to come, they weren't to come near any dead bodies. And they refused to cut their hair. This is the Nazarite vow. This is something that we see, um, uh, uh, that we saw uh, Samson do in the Old Testament, something that Jesus himself did. And when the, when the days of the, of the vows were completed, he was to present, you're to present an, an offering to God. And that offering consisted of, of two lambs, uh, a ram, a basket of unleavened cakes, and a libation of wine. And then as that vow ended, and you offered up that, up that, that um, sacrifice, you'd shave your head, and you'd burn your hair in the fire and offer it as, as a sacrifice. And the reality is, um, it, it took a good sum of money. This was a type of vow that, that poor people usually weren't able to do. And so they were coming to Paul and they are saying, we want you to show your devotion to the ways, to, to Jewish traditions, by not only participating, but taking your own money and paying for all of this to be done. The Jewish Christians um, had, con- had continued to commit themselves uh, to Jewish practices. These Jewish Christians had continued to follow the law of Moses. Um, and now, now, a lot of people, when they hear that, um, reflexively respond to it and go, oh, that's terrible. I mean, how, how, could, they, how could they possibly continue in the law? How, how could they be legalistic like that? We, we reflexively respond in a way in which we say, that, that seems legalistic. Like that, that We shouldn't do that because Jesus Christ came and he set us free from the law, right? So we respond in that way and we're like, well, that's not right. And I'm, so I'm sure that what Paul did is Paul said, you guys need to stop doing that, right? You've got to understand the posture of the church at this time. Uh, these rites of the Jews had been appointed by God for centuries. And, and, and they, were, they were following in on a practice 
in which they believed that that practice just showed how much they loved, loved God. And, in this, and at this point now, they loved Jesus. They were simply saying, listen, listen, we know this isn't what saves us. We know that what, what Jesus Christ did on the cross saved us. But these traditions and these practices are, are deeply spiritual for us. And they, and they point to the work of Jesus Christ. They point to the promise of Jesus Christ. They point to the covenant that, Jesus, that God set with our people that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so for them, they valued this as a deep spiritual experience. They weren't replacing Jesus with this, but they saw it as something that allowed them to really show the depths of their love for God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. There wasn't, there wasn't any legalism to this because they weren't being required. They were doing this voluntarily out of a devotional love. So as, they, as, they're, as they're practicing this, in fact, in fact the, the, throughout the first century, Jewish Christians all continued in the law. They did it all the way up until AD 70, AD 70 when, when, the, when the temple was destroyed. This was an acceptable practice. This was understood as just fine. This was something that was actually good and that, and that, and that fed the soul of the church. And so the, 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 the leaders of, of the church of Jerusalem continued in that practice. And continued to do this because they saw it as something that was beautiful and good and healthy for their people. So the keeping of the law was something that was normal for Jews who came to know Christ. But the reason that this becomes an issue is because Paul practices and teaches freedom from the law. And so now what you have is you have Paul being dropped into this situation where everything's smooth and everything's working and every, everybody's working out of their devotion to God and love for God and love for the church. And they're like, wait a minute, Paul's a Jew too. Why is he not doing this? He, he, why, why does it seem he's saying things that would counteract this, that would go against this. In fact, when you look through, if you look through his writings and you look through the recordings, it seems very clear that he's, he has issues with people continuing in the law. He has problems with people continuing to follow after that. It seems, in fact, that Paul himself personally is breaking away from the law. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. In fact, Paul has really strong words for those who insist on keeping, keeping the law when you read what he writes in Galatians chapter 2. See if his words here seem to convey a disdain for the imposition of the law. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel may be preserved with you. Those seem like really strong words, doesn't don't it? They're looking at him and he's standing there and he's saying, listen, these guys tried to take away our what? Freedom. And we stood against it, man. There's no way I was going to let it happen. 
So all of this stuff is filtering into the church in Jerusalem. And the leaders are saying, listen, we have something really good working here. And God is really moving in this place. And these people's hearts are for him. And as Jews, they, they, have, this, they have this tradition and they have this devotion. And now all of a sudden, Paul, you're going to come in here and you're, you're upsetting the apple cart. And you're creating, you're creating the, the, the start and the, and, and the beginning of what could be division amongst us. Seems to me that, that those, those, those folks were afraid that Paul's going to come and, uh, come and upset their, uh, the apple cart. And I think they have a real fear here. They have this, this smooth running church where everyone has a common understanding of what to do and how to do it. And now here comes Paul with, with, with his wild ideas and strong opinions and, and good arguments. And he's just going to drop this, this theological bomb into the middle of it all. I think they have grounded fears. I think they're right. There is the chance that Paul could upset things and create division amongst the body. He, he, he said, as we just read, that we're against those who bring us to slavery. We won't submit even for a moment to preserve the gospel. But what happens in the story? Then Paul took the men. And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple. Giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So they're fearful that that Paul is going to come in and and he's going to draw the line in the sand. He's going to say, no way. We're not doing that. What does he do? Okay. Let's go do this. He takes the four men. He does exactly and fulfills the plan that they had. The plan that they had to preserve the unity of the body. Paul had every reasonable argument to resist. He had every theological point to give to refuse. But he didn't. And in so doing, he provides a powerful challenge for us in the church today. You have to understand something. Paul had a good argument. Paul had the right point. But to him, it really wasn't important. He didn't acquiesce because of legalism. He yielded because of what he valued care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. This wasn't legalism for him. See, when we stand forward we say, listen, I I could do this or I could do that, but I'm going to choose to do this because I understand the value of the body of Christ, the unity of the body of Christ. That's not legalism. That's devotion. That's fidelity. That's mercy. That's love, that's grace. That's saying, I value the church, and so I'm willing, willingly, not under compulsion, not because I think it has anything to do with my salvation, but because I love the people around me, and I don't want to create issues for them. I love the church that God died for, and I don't want to create division in that. 
He, he looked at the circumstances. He looked at what God was doing among. He looked at what God was doing amongst the Gentiles, and he looked at what God was doing amongst the Jews. And he said, "I want the church to be healthy. I want the church to be good. I want the church to thrive and to prosper. And I don't want to be the one who causes issues, because this is the church of God that was obtained with His own blood." This is really the lesson from Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians that we referenced earlier. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I came as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I have became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The point of his message, the point of his message wasn't, I'm outside the law, man. I don't have to do that stuff anymore. The point of his message was, what is transcendent is the beauty of the calling of Christ. And I'm willing to go under the law. I'm willing to not be in the law. And at either position, either point, you understand, that's not legalism. When we give of ourselves, when we lay things down, when when we offer things up, because we value Jesus, because we love our Heavenly Father, because we care about those who are around us, that's not legalism. That's being gracious. And that's being merciful. And that's loving His church. This is the heart condition that the church is to be valued and the gospel is to be paramount. And I, and I, want, I want to stop for a moment and I, and, I, and I want to make this far more personal than that. So often we talk about valuing the church. And I think we do need to value the church. But do you know what the church is? It's people. We're asking you to value the people of God. We're asking you to value the the weak hearts of people, the the weak minds of people, the the weak spirits of people. We're asking you to, to have such a value for the church of God. And when we say that, we're saying it is those who have have identified as your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about looking around and saying, what can I do? What what actions do I take? What out of an attitude that says I value the church of Jesus Christ? Therein lies the powerful lesson for the church that needs to be embraced today. We must value the church and the gospel must be paramount. And that has to find its expression in community. These can't be, these can't be, these can't be disconnected ideas. We understand the price that was paid for the church and therefore we value it deeply. And then because, as Paul does, we must pursue communal peace instead of our personal concerns. We value the church so much that we pursue peace in the church instead of our own personal proclivities and our own personal desires and our own personal wants. 
What you discover from the story of Paul here is that peace in the church was paramount. That he had freedom. He could do this. He could refuse that. He could make this argument. He could take the stand. But he said, listen, what matters more to me is making sure that the church continues healthy, that the, that the church continues to move forward in, in, in community, in love, in peace. An important truth to understand about this too, is about this topic is, we can expect conflict in the church. I think that's one of the problems we have as we, as we kind of venture together in this community, as we kind of make this journey together as the church. We always think for some silly reason that because we've all become Christians, there should be no conflict. And so then all of a sudden when there's conflict, we go, what's wrong with these people? What's wrong with that church? The mark of a church is not the absence of conflict. That, that I think, is a, is, a, is a standard that is unrealistic to come to expect. And, 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 and to underline my point that it's unrealistic, I have this question for you. Do, have you met yourself? I mean, seriously, like every one of us who, who knows ourselves deeply should know that if everyone around me is anything like me, chances are there's going to be conflict at some point. Right? So, so the standard... The standard uh, of having no conflict is, is, not, is not realistic. It's not about an absence of conflict, but finding unity through the conflict. There are literally dozens of passages in the epistles. Now, and remember what this is. Literally dozens of passages in the epistles. These are the discipling letters to the church. This is how you function as a church. That talk about managing internal conflict. Conflict within the body of Christ. And so you have, to, you have to develop a proper approach to conflict if we're going to achieve communal peace. And I really believe that Paul models for us two important values that the church isn't always good at demonstrating in the face of conflict. If we are going to, as a body of Christ, achieve peace through conflict, we need to value unity over vanity. Specifically, in this passage, I want to focus on, on the lack of vanity demonstrated by Paul as he faces the doctrinal accusations and the apparent theological disparity between Paul's position and Jerusalem's practices. In other words, in other words Paul didn't feel like he had to make his argument. Paul didn't feel like he had to clarify things. They, they, they came to Paul and, and said, you seem to be teaching this, and we think it's good to practice that. And, and everything within that declaration, everything within that accusation, everything within that, the framing of that, Paul could have stood up and said, no. Paul could have stood up and said, first of all, you're, 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 you're framing my argument wrongly. First of all, you don't really get what I've been teaching. Let me explain to you what I've been saying. He could have went up to him and said, wait a minute, guys, what you're clinging to is wrong. What you're holding on to isn't right. We don't need to do any of this stuff. This stuff is outside of it. This stuff, this stuff is in addition to this. This stuff is troublesome. 
Paul had the Paul had, could easily have made the argument. Paul easily could have come and said, this is wrong. This is what's right. And instead of defending his position or pointing out how, how, how they're misrepresenting his position or arguing how he was actually right and they are wrong. He simply says, okay. He simply says, all right. If I can, if I can diffuse a difficult situation for the sake of unity, I will not out of vanity argue my point. In this case, the only reason to argue would be vanity. I'm right, you're wrong. There was no real gospel issue at stake here. The, the, the law wasn't required to bring people to salvation. That was understood by everyone in the room. But the church found deep spiritual value in practicing. In practicing this expression of the law. In practicing this expression of devotion. Was it needed? No. But so what? People found meaning in it. So Paul submitted to their preference. Instead of imposing his. We need to be more interested in, in winning people to the gospel. Than we are in winning gospel absent arguments. If the gospel is at stake. Cool. If the gospel is at stake. Cool. If the gospel is at stake. Set, set, your, set your heels. Dig your heels in. Set your stakes. Argue your point. Hold true to the gospel. But the question has to be, is it really the gospel or vain pride? Paul's not being asked to engage in uh, polyamorous orgies. He, he, he's not being asked to sacrifice a bull to Zeus. He, he's, he's, he's being asked to embrace a ritual of fidelity to God, to the one true God. And that has deep spiritual meaning for some. It might have meant nothing to Paul. But it didn't matter because he valued their spiritual hearts and their spiritual lives more than his theological argument. We can differ on some things. Things that don't violate the laws of God, violate the laws of God or undermine the sufficiency of Christ. And that's at the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the sufficiency of Christ. If you're going to come to me and you're going to say, well, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, or you're going to go to hell. I'm going to dig my heels in because that's a gospel question. But if, if you feel like it should be done this way or believe that doctrinal thing or that idea or this thing, to get into these arguments over and over again vociferously that's creating division in the body is simply vanity. It has no value. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. And I, want to, and, I, and I want to warn you guys against something. You've got to avoid therefore theology. We used to, I used to sit in the dorms in Bible college all the time, and we'd spend hours and hours essentially arguing therefore theology. You know what that is, right? It's always this. It's always this idea. Well, if you hold this position, therefore you're holding that position, and therefore you're holding this position, and therefore the implications are this, and that then means that you're not being saved by Jesus Christ. Anybody ever hear that? 
It's always that. It's always like it's always like sixth generation, and somehow it, it, it ties to the gospel. It, we have to look at it. Is it undermining the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? No. Okay, then it's not a big deal. Don't walk away from each other. Don't create division in the community. Don't break the unity of the body over these things that are not about the gospel. Conflict, disunity over trivial things, too often born not out of gospel fidelity, is ultimately personal vanity. And we we have to fight against that through humility. The other value that Paul demonstrates is the commitment to embrace unity over liberty. This is an incredibly consistent message throughout Christian teachings. And it's one that we seem to be oblivious to in our, incarnation, our American incarnation of faith. Practicing the humility in conflict, the humility in conflict that empowers you to lay down our own liberty and preserve unity is something we need to get much better at. To say, though I have this right, I am willing to lay it down for the unity of the body marks healthy churches. What they asked of Paul, what they asked of Paul, there there was no compulsion in his Christian faith that required it of him. He, he He had every right to not do it. He had no responsibility to do it. But he said, okay. He said, fine. And not only did he say fine, did you, realize, did you notice how they said, and we want you to pay for it all? Right. This was an expensive deal. So not only is Paul coming into this going, listen, I don't have to do that. He could have also said, and not only do I not have to do that, they don't have to do it, and there's no reason for me to pay for it all. This guy's a traveling preacher, right? The guy's not rolling in, in, in dough. He's like going from place to place, building tents to make his way. And they came to him and said, this thing that you don't really care about, this thing that you don't think is that important, this thing we want you to do, and we want you to pay for it all for everybody. He had every right to say no, but he laid down his right. He laid down his liberty. He laid down his freedom for the sake of unity. And as I said, man, this is this is consistent throughout this is the heart of paul 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 writes in first corinthians right he says for though i am free from all i have made myself a servant to all a bond servant a slave that i may win more of them he declares his right of freedom but says i'll lay that down for the sake of the gospel so that the body may be united this is, this is all throughout Christian teaching, beginning with Jesus. It, 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 and it's a consistent in the extreme. This is why it's so weird that we in the church today don't seem to practice it or understand it. This word of God talks about it over and over and over again in, in, in incredibly extreme terms. What, is, what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
And I, and I, and I, and I want to, I want to illuminate that a little bit. So, so we, so we all can kind of wrestle with the idea if somebody smacks you on the, on the cheek, turn the other cheek. We've all kind of heard that. We all kind of, but we still kind of wrestle with that, right? How many people have ever done it? Probably nobody. Um, we can, this whole thing with the whole suing somebody, you, there's something kind of visceral about that. We kind of, uh, we kind of understand that and we go, man, if somebody sued you, how do you feel about that person? You're, f- we're going to win this thing and blah. And at the end of it, you go, oh, that's all right. You can have my tunic too. That's probably not happening. He says here, if someone compels you to go a mile, go two. How many of you guys ever heard that phrase, go the extra mile? You know where it comes out of here? We, that's a really, we, we kind of sanitize that. Hey, man, if somebody needs something, just go the extra mile for them. When you go at work, just go the extra mile, and they'll pay off for you. You know what he's talking about here? In, 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 ancient, in ancient Rome, in, in occupied Jerusalem, in, in occupied Palestine, Along the road, there were, sta- there were markers, there were stakes every mile. And in the law, it was stated that if a Roman soldier came to you as a Jew and had a backpack or had a pack with them, they could tell you, you pick up my pack and you, and you need to walk it one mile. You could be going another direction. You could have another plan going on. You could have, you could, you could have a meeting you've got to get to. But if that Roman soldier said to you, pick up my pack and carry it the opposite direction, the mile markers would let you know you had to go one mile. And then you could drop the pack and go back to what you were doing. By law, you were required. You know what you, how many of you guys think that's fair? How many of you guys think that that is, that is, that is an infringement on my civil rights? I have, I have a right to self-governance. There is no reason why you should compel me to do that. And what does Jesus Christ say? If someone compels you to go a mile, go two. He's saying, I want you to lay down your rights. I want you to lay down. I want you to not worry about defending yourself. Because what I want you to to understand is the gospel of Jesus Christ manifested in you at all times. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, says, if you're a slave, remain a slave. If you can get your freedom, do it. But don't worry about it. But in that, show forth the glory of God. How many people think that you should have a right to not be a slave? Peter in 1 Peter 2 makes the argument, if you're a slave, graciously show honor to your master. Even those who are unfair to you, show honor to them so that they may see the love of Jesus Christ. I mean, what does Jesus say we do in the face of injustice in Luke? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Do you agree with me? That the word of God teaches us in the extreme to be willing to lay down our rights so that Jesus is seen through us? Do you see this as a mark of the American church? We spend so much time, whether it is on, the, on, on levels outside of us where people are mistreating us or abusing us, just saying, We're gonna, that's not right, that's not fair. Or whether it's within the community of faith in which we feel slighted or we feel as though somebody treated us unpoorly. And so we, we create division as a result of this. You can't find anything, I think, in Scripture that is more challenging, more profound than the challenge of being willing to lay down our rights for the sake of the unity. Lay down our liberty for the sake of unity. 
Don't tell me I can't drink. Don't tell me I can't have a beer or have wine. Don't you know Jesus made water into wine? Cool. You're right. But maybe in light of your community, you lay it down. But that's legalism. It's not legalism if you voluntarily lay it down for the good of your brother. Don't tell me not to defend yourself, defend myself. Do you know what he said about me? Cool. Maybe you have a right to defend yourself. Or maybe God wants to be your defender as you show others Christ's love. Don't tell me I'm wrong for walking away from community in this church. Don't tell me I'm wrong for walking away from my faith community. That person took advantage of my kindness out of the goodness of my heart. Do you know how many times I hear people say that? And it's always fascinating to me. Out of the goodness of your heart? What goodness is in your heart? Except that which would be given to you by Jesus Christ. And the fact that you're unwilling to show mercy and grace in this moment shows me that at this moment, the goodness of God doesn't dwell in your heart, but your own pride. Do you have a right? Do you have a right to break community with somebody who's mistreated you? You might be justified in breaking relationship. But could you model God's reconciling gospel story? By, by, by working to build a relationship with a sinner instead of breaking relationship out of self-righteousness? That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? A heart and mind that, a heart, to me, a, a heart and mind rectifying verse has always been Colossians 3. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's incredible to me. He's writing to the church and he's saying, buddy, if somebody's done you wrong, you know how we rectify this? You know how we clarify this? Do you know how we, do you know how we reconcile this? Forgive them. There's no meeting. There, there, there's no counsel. There's, there, there's, no, there's, no, there's no trying to figure out who said what and how they said it and when they said it. He doesn't advise any of that. You know what he advises? If somebody did you wrong, forgive them as Christ forgave you. It solved it. It solved the problem. It, it, it took care of the issue. One of the things I think we lose sight of within the community of faith is, listen, there has to be an offense before there can be forgiveness. There has to be a slight. Before you show mercy. I get it. It's like. it's like, Well you don't understand. They said this. Yes. That's why forgiveness is required. If all they ever said to you was nice things. You don't have to forgive them. If all they ever did was treat you with respect. That's not showing mercy. Being merciful and gracious and loving. Towards people who never do anything wrong to you. Is not mercy. It's not grace. It's not really love.
we need to embrace unity over liberty. It's not a question of what you have the right to do. It's a question of what is right to do in the preservation of the body of Christ. You may have a right, but he has called us to lay down our rights and pick up our cross. You might be right in your position, but be vain in making your point. If we are going to find peace in our community, it will require us to value unity over vanity and embrace unity over liberty. But that will only be achieved when we remember the price that was paid for this community. He bought us all with his blood. He purchased this church with his blood. He puts you here and me here and us here. So deeply valued that he was willing to go to the cross and shed his blood for this community. If we cannot lay aside our vanity for unity, set aside our liberty for unity, it is because we don't understand the depths of the price that was paid so that we may be his church. My prayer this morning is that the Spirit of God is challenging you. That whatever has been taking place in the way in which you see the church, whether it's this church or any church, if you've, if you've been in a place where you, you question the, the disunity, you question the, uh, the conflict, and so it's undermined your heart and your love for the church. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit is challenging you right now. To say, how much of it is my vanity? How much of it is, is my sense of my rights? How much of it is me just sitting here saying, I shouldn't be treated this way or be, be acted towards that way? Because he calls each of us to love his church so deeply. So deeply that we would be willing to give our lives for our brothers and our sisters. That's the value of the church.